Stephanie. Hello and welcome to the final round of our speech competition. I feel very honored to be up here once again. Thank you judges and everyone, friends, family, who have come out to see Abby and I speak on the topic of freedom of speech on a global scale. Freedom of speech is in danger. In fact, I'm not sure we've actually reached a point where we can say everybody has had it. But there is hope. We are well within our right to believe that strengthening and evolving democracy is within our power. To begin with, history is on our side. We have the ability to look back and learn from our mistakes as flawed human beings and our triumphs as champions of mankind. In 1859, philosopher John Stuart Mill wrote an essay called On Liberty, from which I quote, If any opinion is compelled to science, that opinion may, for aught we can certainly know, be true. To deny this is to assume our own infallibility. Over 150 years later, we find ourselves looking at our current state of affairs that have us questioning the self-proclaimed infallibility of our leaders. In my research of this speech, in attempting to answer these questions, I've come to a strong conclusion that seems rather obvious. The worth of any government in our global society is worth the individuals that comprise it. Today, I would like to highlight what are, by general consensus, believed to be mistakes made by leaders as well as champions of mankind. I will begin with some brief history underlining the progress we've made as well as roadblocks that we've encountered towards universal freedom of speech and expression. It's important for us to use history as a tool for recognizing that our struggle for democracy will be a battle. We will encounter setbacks. Once I've illustrated the significance of history, I will elaborate on the current global condition with which we now find ourselves in as a result. Some modern societies are found to be progressing in the direction of democracy, while others, such as our own, are doing quite the opposite, as I've demonstrated in my previous speeches. Call me wildly optimistic in my opinion, but I think with what we've learned over the centuries, we should all be less restricted by our governing processes. It has been observed that winner-take-all voting systems, like we have in Canada, are being enabled to suppress freedom of speech. The countries that seem to be succeeding towards healthy democracy are those that have a substantial amount of public financing and involvement. The most advanced democracies promote proportional representation and have economic policies in place that create a more egalitarian distribution of wealth, which prevents the silence of citizens. I will provide examples of each system in order to demonstrate the atmosphere of current global affairs regarding freedom of speech and expression. Finally, in an attempt to catalyze action in you, I will leave you with what I believe we can contribute to the future of our global society. Let us begin by examining the history of freedom of speech. It's logical to lead with a few examples of where we went wrong and progress towards what I think we did right. My focus, as in previous speeches, will be scientific, 
but I've also found it prudent to expand beyond this theme. When I give these examples, however, I ask that you reflect on the facts that I discussed in weeks past concerning the silence of scientists in Canada. Galileo Galilei is presently considered to be a founder of science and philosophy, but it wasn't always so. His opinions and findings were highly scrutinized by political leaders who were, in his time, the church. In 1611, he came to the attention of the Inquisition, which was a group of institutions within the justice system of the Roman Catholic Church. Its aim was to combat heresy, which Galileo was then accused of. Why? Because he proposed with mathematical evidence that the earth revolves around the sun. In response to this, he wrote a letter to the Grand Duchess Christina and the Vatican arguing for freedom from inquiry, the right to defend his scientific research. He was issued a warning and forbidden to discuss his theory orally or written, yet he was assured that he was not being condemned by the Inquisition. Twenty years later, under a new pope, he was conditionally allowed to publish his research in a book which was then prevented from being distributed due to the arguments of certain church officials. The Inquisition summoned Galileo to Rome and interrogated him for 18 days until he agreed to dilute his theories. However, it wasn't enough to save him from imprisonment in 1633, where he remained until his death 10 years later due to medical complications. Presently, I think it's safe to say that we accept his theory that the Earth revolves around the Sun. But the Church did not formally accept this until 1983. A more recent historical case of silencing scientists is that of Rosalind Franklin in the early 1950s. She made critical contributions to the understanding of the molecular structure of DNA and viruses. Her work with DNA accrued the most fame because it plays an essential role in cell metabolism and genetics. The discovery of its structure helped her co-workers Watson and Crick identify the methods by which genetic information is passed from generation to generation. In what way was she silenced? Similarly to Galileo, her contributions were not recognized until after her death. At the time, her work was discredited and silenced as a result of the academic bureaucrat's sexist view of women at Cambridge. Watson, her supposed co-worker, belittled her work and referred to her as Rosie, which was a name she never used. After her death, Crick acknowledged that they used, they used to adopt a patronizing attitude towards her. Watson and Crick were accredited with her work and she only received recognition after her death. From these examples, we can see how absurd the silencing of scientists was in centuries past. Imagine how much faster we could have evolved towards democracy if suppressed individuals had been acknowledged in their day. Galileo would have advanced the human knowledge of the universe. Rosalind Franklin would have advanced the health and medical field while maintaining gender equality. Freedom of speech was as important in history as it is today. We still made progress, 
despite many obvious setbacks. There are several great examples of freedom of speech prevailing over the odds against it. The most significant being those that resulted in government policies being changed for the betterment of national citizens. In 1215, King John of England signed the Magna Carta, which is regarded as a cornerstone of liberty. He didn't willingly sign it, however. He was forced by a determined few of his subjects. The document was meant to limit his powers and protect the rights of individuals. In science, we recognize Charles Darwin, who wrote On the Origin of Species, in which he expounds the theory of natural selection. At this time in 1859, leaders of the church were constantly in debate with leaders of nations. This was a critical time for democracy and freedom of information. The immediate reaction of leaders to his work sparked heated debate and controversy. Thomas Huxley championed Darwin's right to freedom of speech and under the nickname of Darwin's Bulldog, battled to remove clerical domination of the scientific establishment. The debate between the British Associated for the Advancement of Science and the British Oxford Bishop was a pivotal struggle between religion and science, with science winning out over silence in the end. Without T.H. Huxley and others to advocate for the freedom of expression and speech, do you think we would have reached similarly momentous milestones in democracy? So here we are in the year 2014 with literally countless historical cases to help us make informed decisions. You would think we've learned not to oppress scientific literature and freedom of speech merely based on the fools that past leaders have made in themselves when doing so. Yet, we're living in a world with, a gov with government leaders that insist on this two-steps-forward, one-step-back approach. I'm going to expand on this and a few prime examples that will support my opinion in this matter. Unfortunately, Canada has fallen into this category, as I mentioned in my first two speeches. And since I've already developed this idea to an extent, I'm only going to briefly touch on it tonight. One case was prominent last week that I'd like to really drill in. In 2011, scientists working for Environment Canada held confirmed results of a study that demonstrated how snowfall near Alberta's tar sands was contaminated with petroleum-based toxins. Snowfall is part of a system that replenishes the water that humans consume. These scientists were instructed to avoid media attention altogether and let a government official handle it, or they could choose from a list of scripted statements. The message they were made to proclaim to the public media was that their study uncovered no petroleum-based toxins. Furthermore, that no conclusive relationship could be established between tar sands pollution and mutated fish found in the region. This is the opposite of what their research had actually uncovered. When our government was confronted on this, they called it typical modern communications management. This is a direct violation of scientists' freedom of speech that could lead to serious health complications of nearby populations. Their silencing says to me that the Prime Minister doesn't care about the citizens he governs. He merely cares about making money. 
And this issue affects our southern neighbors as well. Dr. Michael Mann of Pennsylvania State University and author of The Hockey Stick and Climate Wars is currently suing the National Review which accused him of fraud despite groundbreaking, undeniable data. In 2011, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change of the United Nations actually featured his graph showing global temperature over a period of the past thousand years. It clearly established that temperature had risen in correlation with the industrialization and use of fossil fuels. Thus, the obvious conclusion was that human activity since the dawn of the industrial age has caused the unprecedented rise in carbon dioxide levels. In response to his data, well-funded science deniers set to work in creating controversy and confusion. This is a perfect case where scientific evidence that opposes the government's pro-fossil fuel agenda is attacked and regarded as rebellious. In his book, Dr. Mann reveals that the true role of science deniers is to cause damage, done through the combined attempts of government, media, and corporations to silence scientists. That's a lot to take in. Fortunately, there are countries within our global community that seem to be making the right choices when it comes to science and freedom of speech. There are two fantastic examples I would like to share, which I think demonstrate how strong democratic societies should be run. One is Norway, and the other is Uruguay. They don't have problems concerning freedom of speech because their citizens are liberated under a government that maintains and preserves their rights. Thanks to Prime Minister Ernest Solberg, Norway is considered to be among the nations with the most freedom of press, according to Reporters Without Borders. It is also deemed to be the second happiest place to live in the world, based on a 2013 Gross National Happiness Report conducted by the UN. The standard of living in Norway is among the highest in the world, has the lowest unemployment rate, along with the highest wages. Its crime rate is way lower than average and has a much better prison system. How have they accomplished this? To start with, 30% of all employment is through the government. Better yet, significant portions of the oil industry are owned by the government. Last month, due to high oil prices, everyone in Norway technically became a millionaire as the country's sovereign wealth fund which is the largest in the world, reached $8.28 billion. The real important thing to take away from this is that the government is only allowed to use 4% of the sovereign fund every year. Oil profits are taxed at 78%, and the money is invested or saved for the future use of Norway's citizens. Its government works for the people, not big business. Thus, they have no reason to silence their scientists through the muzzling of press. Rather, they can work together at making Norway a more successful global community member. The second nation I mentioned that must be doing something right is Uruguay, named Country of the Year in 2013. President Jose Muica was on the list of 100 leading global thinkers according to the Foreign Policy magazine. 
What does he do differently that allows him to be considered such a forward thinker? He doesn't live like our politicians here in Canada. He lives in a college, or a cottage, not a college. He drives a beetle, and he donates 90% of his earnings to charity, which benefits the poor and small entrepreneurs of his nation. Under Uruguay's law, elected officials must declare their personal wealth. Muika was worth a grand total of the value of his car, which was $1,800 last I checked. He was quoted saying, If you don't have many possessions, then you don't need to work all your life like a slave to sustain them. Therefore, you have more time for yourself and others. What I would like to focus on, however, is his viewpoint regarding climate change and sustainability. He is an avid supporter of scientists, claiming we need to make changes to our lifestyles in order to sustain human existence. He encourages scientific research and allows them the freedom to publish their data without obstruction. At the United Nations Conference on Sustainable Development in 2012, he stated, We've been talking all afternoon about sustainable development to get the masses out of poverty. But what are we thinking? Do we want the model of development of consumption of the rich countries? I ask you now. What would happen to this planet if Indians would have the same proportion of cars per household as Germans? How much oxygen would we have left? Does this planet have enough resources to sustain 7 or 8 billion people with the same level of waste and consumption that today is seen in rich societies? He made claims that the leaders have a blind obsession to achieve growth through consumption as if the contrary would mean the end of the world. Muika demonstrates to me that he not only promotes freedom of speech in scientists, but he firmly believes that their work is significant and has an impact on the quality of life of human beings. Norway and Uruguay are only two examples of nations that seem to understand freedom of speech and scientific research are important to healthy societies. Would it be completely naive to suggest that other countries could benefit from their style of governing? I don't think so. Democratic governments don't always do the right thing. People and their governments are far from moral. What is important for us to learn is that democracy is an evolving system which constantly reinvents the meaning of free society. I can rant all I want about the immorality of our own current governing body, but I could never deny that we need it in order to advance as society. Sometimes governments fail to do the right thing, but it doesn't mean we don't require them. We merely need to evolve them alongside our changing societal needs. We begin by progressing towards improved freedom of speech and expression. But I want to take it one step further for a moment. A more reasonable dispersal of wealth would be seen as a great effort in an attempt to remedy the unequal distribution of power. A policy that attempted to eliminate economic inequality would not be one that requires everybody to make the same amount of money. The point is to reduce the income disparity to a level that is reasonable and fair so that it can no longer undermine political equality. 
speaking from what I know, it seems to me Canada could take a page from Norway's book. But this speech isn't about economics. I, don't, I can't claim to know much about it. Concerning freedom of speech, I found a common reoccurring theme in the justification of its restriction. This is the allegedly superseding interest of government over public liberty and benefit. Public benefit is a subjective concept. It's at the mercy of legislators that are as lacking in morals and understanding as us, the people they govern. This concept is important to retain, however arbitrary. Therefore, the restrictions placed upon freedom of speech should be weighted carefully. Restraints upon the opinions of individuals or scientific researchers should be evolving and acceptable to the media. Restriction where it is unwarranted leads us to an undermined society, thus creating instability and a decrease in public benefit. World leaders must establish a balance between freedom of expression and their need to efficiently govern a nation while preserving democracy. We can't blame our leaders alone. Politicians have little incentive to change the system which brought them to power. They took advantage of the current administrative and economic schedules and aren't likely to challenge them. They can't wholly be answerable for taking advantage of a political atmosphere that allows them to make reparations that suit their ambitions. What does this mean for us members of a global society? We can't rely on democratic reforms coming from the top down. Most leaders, with a small exception, two of which I mentioned, don't want to change things. The changes have to come from the bottom up. That's us. If we think freedom of speech is in danger, we must deliver our demands in such a way that our leaders will hear us. The only way to have policymakers conduct their nation in such a manner that evolves democracy is that we must pressure them to do so. We can never forget that the government consists of real, fallible people, as I said at the beginning of my speech. In conclusion, I would sum up the message I'm trying to portray to you. Change doesn't start at a global level. It doesn't start at a national level. It starts with the individual. It is the responsibility of each one of us to prevent the silence of freedom to express, communicate, listen, and learn by preventing the corruption of democracy. Thank you. I know there's a question.